0: Thrill the lissom lust of the light, O man, my man. Come careering out of the night, O pan, lo pan. On a milk-white ass, come over the sea, to me, to me. Come with Apollo and bridal dress, shepherd dress, and pythoness. Come with Artemis, silken shod, and wash thy white thigh, beautiful God. In the moon of the woods, on the marble mount, the dimpled dawn of the amber fount. I am thy mate, I am thy man, God of thy flock, I am gold, I am God. And I rave, and I rape, and I rip, and I rend, everlasting world without end. Mannequin maiden, Mayanad man, in the might of Pan, lo Pan.
1: There is a theory going around that the USA was and still is a gigantic Masonic plot under the ultimate control of the group known as the Illuminati. It is difficult to look for long at the strange single eye crowning the pyramid which is found on every dollar bill and not begin to believe the story a little. Too many anarchists in the 19th century Europe were masons for it to be pure chance. Lovers of global conspiracy, not all of them Catholic, can count on the Masons for a few good shivers and voids when all else fails. Bastion, why don't you do what you dream?
0: Because I can't. I have to keep my feet on the ground.
1: Call my name, Bastion.
0: All right, I'll do it. I'll save you. I'll do what I dream. Hello and welcome. I am William Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and thusinkbook.com We are a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at uh, SyncBook. Today is the 26th day of May, and this is our 186th broadcast on this day. In 1969, Apollo 10 returned to Earth after a successful 8-day test of all the components needed for the forthcoming first moon our manned moon landing which launched july sixteenth, nineteen sixty nine and landed on July forty or twenty four. So keep your electric eye on me, babe, and pressure space space close to mine. But before we freak out on in this moon age daydream, we need to figure out how to accomplish enough thrust to break free of Earth's gravitational pull. So Douglas Nash.
1: Yeah. So naturally, we'll <laughs> we'll need to look at a 19th century black magician and a 20th century rocket scientist to figure out why a Masonic flag went to the moon. And we'll do so with the most courageous and incendiary publisher in the U.S. Hello, I'm Douglas Bowles, and today we share 42 Minutes with Adam Parfrey, probably the most influential underground publisher in post-millennial America. He founded and operates the notoriously perpetually ahead of the curve company Farrell House, whose encyclopedic interest in taboo and conveniently forgotten cultural phenomenon helped define independent media throughout the 90s. He is also responsible for the pre-internet classic apocalypse culture as well as *Process media, which he co-founded in 2005. More information about his imprints can be found at Farrellhouse.com. Today, we'll be considering his titles, Ritual America and Sex and Rockets. We are extremely honored to have him here today with us. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for that celebratory uh, introduction. Appreciate it. You bet.
1: (laughs) Well, let's start off topic. Yesterday was Memorial Day, and though this particular soldier didn't die in battle, who is Smedley Butler, and why is he potentially worth remembering?
2: Medley Butler was an amazing person. He was a general uh, for the American military, a brigadier general, and in uh, by the time the uh, uh, '30s came along, he got sickened by the way the American or American army and the corporate uh, edifices worked together, and how a lot of the um, the so-called wars are nothing but a corporate racket. And he went around touring the country, and he spoke of a, a of a, a thing that would later became a book, and a n- newer one through Feral House called War is a Racket. And he's a tremendous guy. You think about it. A, a brigadier general revealing this information about the inner tangents of uh uh, war, war-like behavior by this country. It's, it is amazing. So uh, I, I have great respect for the man.
1: As you mentioned that, it, all of a sudden this – who which – was it Ike who went on TV and said something about the global – no, what was it? The military-industrial complex.
2: Yeah, yeah, Eisenhower – revealed that in one of his last open dialogues <laughs> as president. And uh, th- that's interesting to look up. Um, it was right before um, Kennedy came to power, I think.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, then contrast that with, with a person like Jack Parsons and a company like Aerojet. And then uh, why, d- despite its beginnings, should it become dependent on war?
2: Well, that's where the money is, obviously. Um, what Jack Parsons was doing, and he, he, he's not, you know, it's, it's funny to imagine that this guy who was an outright nerd and disrespected by everybody because he was not really a physicist and a doctorate like other people involved with, uh, you know, with scientific operations at the time. And he did a, a rocket test uh, originally. And he did that with or without uh, the interest of, uh, of other people. But he was looking for money to support his rocket tests that he did with friends of his uh, from Pasadena, California. And um, so the fact that he got through and was able to start up this uh, jet propulsion laboratory thing with uh, friends of his, and this guy named Theodor von Karman, this Hungarian physicist and teacher at Caltech, uh, is a pretty extraordinary thing, because it's sort of like a saying that some small-time nerd from some godforsaken area of the United States started the CIA. It had that much impact.
1: <laughs> well that's what's so fascinating about Jack Parsons to me is that if you took all his personal life away and just focused in on what he accomplished it, he's an interesting character and, and would make a great you know star of a film of you know, some kind but then if you, if you let the other stuff into it I mean so what, what is the other stuff that I'm talking about
2: well his interest in the cult and science fiction novels as well. And um, so he got involved uh, eventually uh, with Alistair Crowley and Aleister Crowley's ideas and invocations for the Antichrist <laughs> to uh, take over. And, well, for Crowley, the Antichrist was a, was a good thing, not a bad thing so you have to turn your head around and look at what the idea is there and uh read, just basically comes from a uh, anti-christian i uh, advocation and that the the re, the reality of it is that mankind should have you know prop be propped up more because what Christ did or the Christ idea did was denude uh, the behavior of people who are scientists and others because it made them seem like lower lower level, incapable of uh, achieving what the Christ God has achieved. So it's basically, in some way, um, a promotion of atheist reality, but they did believe in other things, and uh, so you can't really call them an actual atheist. But that's what it is. It's, it's a promotion of science above the Christian God.
1: One of the fascinating things to me about both Crowley and Jack Parsons were the they have this deep interest in, in like the in-world, the occult, but then they manifest such outward, big, grand realities. So Crowley was a mountain climber, and then Parsons was a rocketeer. Have you ever made a connection about that?
2: A connection between being a rocketeer and a mountain climber? Um, well, it's just <laughs> like that you're, it was a personal achievement. And personal uh, successes come above uh, sitting in church and reading uh, the Old and New Testament.
1: The idea that they both wanted
2: to get higher. Oh I get your connection Douglas. Higher in every way through drugs, through ritualism, through unorthodox uh, scientific explorations. Through personal achievements and mountain climbing and other things, uh, that's the idea. Yeah,
0: that reach into the infinite or into the outer space for a higher. It's kind of like they're trying to get their own connection to God outside of the, you know, common consensus Christian mentality of the time.
2: That's very true. That also the interest in science fiction or exploration into literature in terms of uh, uh, breaking through the restrictions of of the Christian idea. And uh, it was a science fiction idea to do exploring space or missions to Mars or the moon. That, That wasn't believed as being a legitimate thing to explore at all. It was just some fantasy. And that Jack Parsons uh achieved it getting uh uh, exploring the kind of explosive or dynamite or uh dynamite type thing or uh to be able to blast a ship above the earth's gravitational field that was thought as being total nonsense even by most scientists
1: when did it stop ceasing being nonsense when did they stop laughing at the idea
2: well when he did it successfully (laughs) <laughs> and is
1: that when the military came to him and said, hey, we like what you're doing here?
2: No, no, he didn't actually achieve that until he got some backing from Theodore von Karman and his uh, Caltech uh, people. But he he showed that he was able to do all, quite a bit. So that's why they backed it.
0: So let's talk about the Babylon workings a little bit. Could you describe exactly what that entailed?
2: Well, it was a ritual uh, through, you know, oaths and ideas uh, put forward by Aleister Crowley, the Satanic, if you call him a Satanist, the Thelemites are people who follow Alistair Crowley uh, object to that idea, but in any case, um, it's a Crowleyan idea uh, of uh, bringing forth a person who is like the archetype or icon of this new idea of breaking through the Christian, uh, you know, stalling man's. Uh, projection into space or or the idea of uh, un, you know so they simply it's getting beyond the Christian concept and by invoking and praying to uh, uh, an anarchist or antichrist or a beast uh, as discussed by the book of Revelation
1: and I read that Parsons would So at the beginning, Will read from the hymn to Pan. Yeah, and that was something that Jack Parsons would recite before he would do rocket tests. Is that true?
2: Yes, it. Yeah, yeah. And he claimed that it really helped every test he did to succeed. But that's what happened. He was the the thing you were reading at the beginning. Jack Parsons was invoking at every single rocket test he did.
1: But then also was there almost this mystique around Parsons as if he was kind of this... So one of the interesting things that I found out was that his birthday... Or So there's a lot of strange coincidences in the book Sex and Rockets talking about young John Whiteside Parsons uh, around his birthday mm-hmm. and that he invoked Satan when he was 13. Yeah. Could, could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, he he lived in a pretty mystical area in Pasadena, actually, as a kid. And there was a a bridge that was built uh, when he was around seven years old. It's called Suicide Bridge. And uh, and then there was other things. He was, you know, what every child does, and it's a childlike ideas that aren't taken seriously, but he went forward with them and um, broke through the ter- territory of restriction on that. And he also climbed into caves in uh, around Pasadena that were old Indian uh, grounds of uh, worship grounds there, the American Indians, Native Americans. So there was a lot of stuff in his life just t- running around that bizarre mystical area, of Pasadena, that uh, promoted that idea of uh, going forward and getting breaking out of a uh, human or Christian restriction. Then, of course, uh, Gen- Jack- uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratories based their operation in Pasadena, Caltech. Base their operations in Pasadena, so that is a pretty mystical region itself, and influenced Parsons and influenced uh, other people if they don't, even if they don't acknowledge it.
1: Disneyland's in Pasadena. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
0: that's a pretty magical thing, right? That's like a magic spell somehow, and then there's did the you, Disney association to the masonry and stuff.
2: Did you but say just
0: Disney, yeah. Disney's in Pasadena, isn't it?
2: Uh, no. Disneyland. Oh,
1: Anaheim. Anaheim. Yeah.
2: County. Yeah. Which is located in Pasadena, but Walt Disney worked near there, and I lived near Disney's first uh, little studios in the the Franklin Hills area of Los Angeles, and that's about, you know, five, seven miles away from... uh, Pasadena, the way a crow flies.
0: I am, my mind is going crazy now because a bunch of connections just got put together here, especially with, okay, so there's the reference of Crowley with the moon child, but it's hinting on leaving Earth in some way. Um, Then there's the whole sci-fi Parsons thing, the rocket thing. Then there's the whole L. Ron Hubbard thing, and there's all of this, like... Um, intelligence association to this. There's the CIA involved. Espionage is involved. And it just just boggles my mind. I can't decide on which is crazier, like fact or fiction. Yeah, well, it
2: has that uh, effect, doesn't it? Now, that time the CIA wasn't formed in the 30s. It was the OSS at that time. Ah, yes, you're right. And then, but... Uh, yeah, all these aspects are uh, gather in this one story. It, it is quite quite amazing uh, piece of American history. I remember when S- Sex and Rockets put out, we were very scrupulous about having the science correct in the book and all that, and also the occultism scrupulous about that too. So there are two worlds: the science world and the occult world. Intersecting and banging against each other, and people from uh, both scenes, like uh, we, there was a lot of uh, heavy hatred coming from the science community. Uh, you can see that on, you know, even Amazon comments on the book, and it, it just said, "This isn't real science." Blah, 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 blah. They just this this resentment against. Jack Parsons and what he did because he did this crazy occult stuff uh, they can't deal with it it's incredible
1: mm-hmm. well now I know some of the Feral House works have inspired films such as Ed Wood and Big Eyes and I, I think I heard that you were working on a film version of something similar to Sex and Rockets How is, wh- where is that if that's correct
2: well the, it, it I'm not sure where it's at but right now, but the uh, Sundance channel optioned the book for a TV series, and I don't know where that's at. That may never happen. Yeah. And then the rights will be uh, come back to us again. But in any case, there is interest in that. And for a number of years, the uh, producer, Don Murphy, optioned the book. He, he uh, had people write a script. The Sundance people wrote a script. But nothing has uh, gone forward yet on that level.
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely is this enigmatic time and place. Because another name that wasn't in that bunch that Will said was uh, Robert Heinlein. Oh, you know what? What role did he play in you know influencing or being influenced by Parsons?
2: Well, Parsons. at a mansion he lived in with a lot of odd people coming in and living there as well, including Elron Ron Hubbard, um, had a, like a science fiction group. And uh, he was extremely influenced by the ideas of some of the science fiction, including Einlein. Uh, but Jack Williamson is another sci-fi writer that influenced Parsons a great deal who wrote a book called uh, Darker Than You Think, I believe, about the... Um, I think that had to do with uh, man and beast, and, and like a <laughs> these biological entities kind of combining forces, and also women being involved in a kind of a mystical and ferocious way. So... And then... Uh, that's where Elron Hubbard got involved with Parsons, and uh, stole his uh, girlfriend at the time, and also stole his money when they got into a operation uh, about uh, investing in boats or yachts, that kind of thing in Florida. And what happened is that uh, Hubbard ran off with. Parsons money and girlfriend <laughs> it didn't work out well for either of them
0: <laughs>
2: but there, was, there was he uh when they heard I was going to be publishing a book on Parsons and of course L. Ron Hepper is a great part of that story uh I got stalked by the Church of Scientology
0: oh really
2: yeah yeah. And it's, a, it's the idea of the, the reality of it, and so I had to get a lot of legal help, I had to deal with the issue, I had to speak to uh, the Church of Scientology. I offered them the ability to put in the book their perspective on the relationship between uh, Jack Parsons and Ron Hubbard, and all that. It, it re- really put me through a great deal of trouble deal with that situation. Um, the more recent book on the Church of Scientology that was made into that documentary, uh, the book by Lawrence Wright, it, it uh, credits uh Sex and Rockets as being source material uh, for their, a lot of that stuff about uh, early days of Hubbard. Hmm. So... I... I, I it, there were uh, there was another book, a biography, called Blue-Faced Messiah that had some of that information in it, but not all of it for sure. And so other people have also done that uh, research and published that. But Sex and Rockets was really a, a big force because it got a lot of uh, reviews in, the, in, in newspapers and magazines at the time about that situation with Hubbard and Parsons.
1: Well, now, <clears throat> Sex and Rockets is written by a gentleman named John Carter, which is kind of humorous. Yeah, <laughs> humorous. But could you talk, I mean, say as much as you can about you know, that pseudonym and,
2: you know, that Who situation? is
0: this mysterious <laughs> figure?
2: I, I think John Carter is Edgar Rice Burroughs-type uh, reference.
0: Right.
1: Yeah.
2: So that's, you know, early sci-fi adventure <laughs> novels. But the um John Carter is another man who at the time lived in Texas and he worked for uh the government and he was concerned that he would uh harm his job if he came out in this proper name as the writer of this book. So I agreed to you to for him to use a pseudonym. Also the writer Robert Anton Wilson, who you might know, yeah. that great man, Big fan. he wrote the production for the book, and he, you know, uh, so we all got to talking about Parsons, and it was very interesting to him and to us, so we had a connection there. So um, so anyway, yeah, John Carter, I, I, I helped a bit with some of the research of the book, but I was not really the main writer or main focus of that, so I didn't attach my name to it, But except as a publisher.
1: Well, I know historically there's a lot of correspondence between Crowley and Parsons. Yeah. Did they ever meet?
2: They never physically met, ever. But Parsons ran his uh, Thelemic Lodge in Pasadena, or Los Angeles it met at, I think, at the time. Uh, So he was a big spoke in that Crowley and great beast wheel and was very important to Crowley. He was important to Crowley. And also his work sometimes uh, made Crowley apoplectic in his (laughs) uh, concerns because it was kind of crazy even for Crowley.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's, it's a fabulous uh, story. Just it, it, You know, it really pushes (laughs) your thoughts of, uh, I don't know, just the idea that they're doing these rituals every day or, you know, at least every week. So it's it's strange to me that coming out of a ritualistic Christian background that they would stay, you know, so heavy in ritual and create their own kind of dogmatic structure.
2: Well, also... What it does is like, you have my perspective of it, my interest in it, is that where does science start and ritual end? It really uh, troubles your mind about the idea of science. Uh, And what is it? And how does it function? And, you know, science is all about like the an atheistic idea that it's nothing to do with any mystical concept at all. But you have to reflect on that and ask yourself, is that absolutely the truth in every way?
0: I just find it amusing when anybody talks about the occult and the mainstream consensus. It's like, well, that's not rocket science. But in this case, it actually (laughs) was. You know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. It was the center of it. <laughs> it wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have had, uh, you know rockets going above that Earth's gravitational field without Parsons discovery of a type of solid fuel that's still used.
0: You know, there's a multitude of websites nowadays on the alternative circuit that analyze patches and stuff of NASA and just decode all the occult symbolism. Do you, do you think that it's still live and well in, in, the, in the space industry?
2: I can't speak of that because I don't really know. So I just know that this uh, beginning of it was involved through Parsons and even von Karman, uh, the Hungarian. There's a stamp on about him. He was in aeronautics early on in the 40s, 30s, 50s. Uh, he believed in the golem, from the Jewish point of view. He says his his relatives in the past created a golem. So there's. Mystical aspects to it, all over the place.
0: Fascinating.
1: And then in that, so it's it's hard because I'm trying to separate out. You have an individual who's part of this larger organization, such as the OTO and the AA. But then these are kind of somewhat outgrowths of Masonic type organizations. But then another book that. Feral House brought out in 2012 is this Ritual America, which is just an encyclopedia of all the different American institutions and the kind of (laughs) just ephemera that they produce.
2: Well, more, you know, what I saw in the the Masonic, and the reason I did this book uh, and wrote it with the help of Craig Heimbichner, was that, you know, how much did Freemasonry affect the United States? Well, the Revolutionary War would not have been won against the British if it were not for Freemasonry and the connections to the French aspect of Freemasonry. That's a start. Then, as time went on, um, you know, you would see how FDR would have this... Masonic implements and the cornerstone, the idea of the cornerstone of a building, that's a Freemasonic idea, and the cornerstone of a building, like uh, there are images in the book, throughout the book, of uh, government entities laying cornerstones with uh, Masonic implements. (laughs) And you know, so you can see it on the corner of buildings in Washington, D.C., and all over the place. Even the way Washington, D.C. was laid out and designed was Masonic. It, it, so uh, even the game of baseball is a Masonic idea, and, and the way uh, Baseball Diamond is, and all that stuff. So it, it, it is, uh, throughout America, it was basically a networking uh, thing. People would get jobs and all that. They may not have been so mystical about it, but they joined this organization, this mystical organization, actually, Freemasonry, to, to so that they could work. Also, another thing that Freemasonry did, and Freemasonic-like organizations did, you didn't have to belong to Freemasonry. You could be, belong to the Odd Fellows or the Woodmen, and there were hundreds of these types of organizations who were Masonic-like. And that was America. Yeah. You know, that was our country. and It was implicitly involved. And, you know, these freemasonic masonic like organizations did things like um, burial services. And uh, that's why in a graveyard, particularly graveyards, you would see things, uh, gravestones from the 50s. And be- before that, you would see uh, Masonic markers, or the Woodman markers, or Oddfellow markers, all sorts of things. And you go, what is that? Those are fraternal organizations that took care of the family. There was no, like, welfare or social security at the time. Oh. and But the Freemasonic organization took that part. Also, Freemasonry is not just evil, or, or they're weird, but it's not evil necessarily, I think, because they started um, the idea of of schooling and really public schooling and not through, you know, Christian schools or Catholic schooling or that kind of thing. They did it like it was non unrelated to a religious organization per se. And that was due to Freemasonry.
1: Well, here's a funny anecdote. So uh, in Boise, where I live, there's this annual concert called Treefort, and one of the venues, because it's in the right part of town, is the El Cora Shrine. And so once a year, the whole town goes into the El Cora Shrine, which is this beautiful historical building, and then it kind of opens up that world to us, which is so fascinating because it's a mix of, uh, you know...
2: temple sounds like...
1: There's, uh, there's kind of a what am I trying to say? Muslim, because infl- it's there's Arabic influence in the the symbols and stuff. But what's so fascinating is so here's this fraternal organization where the youngest member is like in his nineties. Was this a moment of time that's kind of gone, or do you see, you know, wh- what's what's on the horizon for fraternal organizations?
2: Well, they're they're on the out, as I saw. It. Uh, in the book, in like the 50s or 60s, when suburbanization became, it was enlarging, and when um, uh, driving to work became larger, and then it became less community-oriented. America became less in that way. And so people didn't find their way to the, the shrines and temples and all these aspects of fraternal organizations that was more important to them in the past. Also, um, people became uh, a little wealthier so they could avoid things or uh, afford things uh, like funerals.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, I, I, that was a, such a big deal earlier. Another thing is, when science came more to the fore in American, uh, into the American idea, these mystical concepts receded a bit more to the past, um, like Freemasonry. Mm. However, what I've discovered is that Freemasonry is still big, it's biggest these days, I think. And uh, the military, also with police. It's just an organization, a like-minded, uh, pal-together type of organization. Um, so that, that's intri- intriguing, I think.
1: How, how serious do they take the rituals then? Is that just kind of the activity that you do to form the community and the rituals are less important than the actual community?
2: When you say an oath, let's say like as a Cub Scout, how important is it to you as a child? Do you believe it? Yeah, I think so. Do you just repeat words?
1: Probably a little of both.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to say things and not believe it on some level, of course. But how important is it to people? You just have to I don't know. I think it's important to some people, unimportant others. I don't
0: know. So what you're getting at is we have no idea what we just did when we recited the Hymn of Pan. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know what we just did to ourselves.
1: Oh, you butchered it. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) If you don't do it right, then
0: it's meaningless. (laughs) Okay. Well, good. Then I feel at ease now that I can't do anything right. So, we've been I mean,
1: talking about enigmatic lineage. Let's well, t- we're
0: we're running out of time, though, so we've got to talk about Feral House, and I, I'm i very interested on in how this all started.
2: How did Feral House start?
0: Yes, sir. What was its inception?
2: Well, um, earlier, in the early 80s, I had worked at the Strand Bookstore as a, a slob who carried books around and... I had a book business, I would, like I would dig throwaways out from Goodwill, and I'd find really interesting books. They only kept the crappy books for their stores. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then, um, so I, I started learning about the business itself. And then more than that, I, I knew that, you know, as I saw the industry or business at the time, that the big books for them were uh, uh, celebrity cookbooks or, meaningless babble, and I, it, that got me angry because <laughs> I know uh, this is a big thing to do is to put out books that discuss uh, things that are not usually discussed in the, the meaningless drivel of the morning newspaper, which were much bigger at the time than now. So um, that was important to me to find things of fascination or, that were ignored and, and they were important too so that's what started me with uh, Feral House also I had a company I co-published a company called Amok Press before that we did about 10 books and they were uh, that's when that book Apocalypse Culture was first published and other books about you know, hobo literature and other things that became more popular now on, in time. So Apo- that, that's what I like to do. Books that have impact and interest and are ignored otherwise.
0: Let's talk about Apocalypse Culture. What is that book about and who killed Wilhelm Reich? <laughs>
2: um, well, Apocalypse, you know, that, that was a compilation that uh got people going because it had some stuff you would just would not put in a book it was too hard, <laughs> too weird too, you know Wilhelm Reich was, is another scientist uh, like Parsons who did things that are particularly later in his career disqualified as being actual science because it was too mystical in a way so it, it, you know, so well, I'm right. We're into that world of, uh, 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 of science and mysticism a bit and um, flying saucers and stuff like that. And so that was all part of that scene. And I just wanted to discuss the parts of America that we that it, are actually happening and occurring but ignored or dispatched as irrelevant. That was apocalypse culture.
1: And it's interesting, so I was speaking about enigmatic lineage, and as I was preparing for this show, I realized how you've touched a lot of really different interesting pockets. And so, you know, you'll appear on this punk rock podcast over here, and then with these military guys over here. Oh, and then here you are with Mark Marin you know, in 2013, and you realize what an influence apocalypse culture had on him. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of, you you know, you can see these different little tendrils like Thomas Pynchon or Paul Thomas Anderson are, you know, touching similar things. How do you feel about your place in this this Southern California mystical, magical world?
2: I... uh... Well, if it's affecting things, I'm glad for that. I'm, that was the point. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I, you know, I'm still in the middle of it. I'm still working hard on that, so I can't look back and take uh, credit for a lot of these things. You know, it might have happened, might not have happened. I don't know.
1: Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. You've been listening to Adam Parfrey on SyncBook Radio, a production of SyncBook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Parfrey can be found on his website, FarrellHouse.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And he doesn't understand that he's the one who has the power to stop it. He simply can't imagine that one little boy can be that important.